This podcast is a publication of the Engineering Management Institute, where we are committed to building professional development systems, including project management and people leadership programs that support the growth of engineers and their firms. Download our AE Industry Trends Report for insights on the great resignation, remote work productivity, and people-centric cultures. To get your copy, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org. Welcome to this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. I'm your host, Matt Douglas, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I will be talking with Tucker Perkins, the president and the CEO of the Propane Education and Research Council, and we'll be talking about the intersection of engineering and the evolving energy landscape with a focus on propane technology, sustainability, and the role of engineers in the energy transition. But before we go on here, here's a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Burns & McDonald. A career at Burns & McDonald goes beyond delivering projects. It's about owning outcomes, finding your best fit, and making a difference. Right now, Burns & McDonald is hiring engineers, architects, construction professionals, technologists, scientists, and consultants to design, build, and deliver environmentally conscious and socially responsible projects. Explore opportunities across their family of companies by visiting burnsmcd.com slash careers. That's burnsmcd.com slash careers. Burns and McDonald is an equal opportunity employer. Now let's jump right into today's episode. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, it's now time for our Civil Engineering Conversation of the Week with Tucker Perkins. Tucker, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. How are you doing today? Man, I'm doing great. Looking forward to the next few minutes with you. Thanks for having me. So just to get us started, can you share how your engineering background led you to your current role as the president and the CEO of the Ropane Education and Research Council? Yeah, I think my engineering degree really was the foundational reason I got this job. I mean, again, I'm managing people, we're managing projects, we're in a world that's polarized around energy, but I think the very foundation of being an engineer and able to deal with complex technical issues and and maybe offer complex technical solutions really aid in that. So I'm nearly certain that without an engineering degree, I wouldn't be in this role. And what did you study when you went to school? And where did you go to school? I went to Virginia Tech. I spent a lot of time, as most people do in their first year, I think, trying to decide, do I want to be a mechanical engineer? I quickly could decide that I didn't want to be an electrical engineer. So I actually bounced back and forth between civil and mechanical because I was really fascinated by a lot of the outdoor elements of civil engineering construction, road building, surveying, and I really kind of focused in on a lot of fluid flow issues. So I'd bounce around a little bit in and out of the mechanical engineering halls, and I'm glad I did because today, and we'll talk about it later, you know, deeply involved in engines and a lot of thermodynamic issues that civil engineers aren't normally trained for. But I love all aspects of being a civil engineer, thinking about clean water, urban planning, transportation. It's an excellent foundation for me. Are you from the East Coast as well? I am a native Virginian, 
who has rarely worked in Virginia, but I've never left Virginia. Delta and American Airlines know me pretty well, but I've operated businesses in Texas. One business was in 40 states, but I've always been a Virginian and never gone too far from Richmond, Virginia. What are some of the key innovations in propane technology that align with the evolving energy landscape? So first off, the energy landscape is certainly evolving and it's evolving rapidly in many areas, right? Not the least of which is even what are the right fuels of the future? You know, we were wed to coal and oil and natural gas. And I think now a lot of people would say that we need to be done with those things and move to the new things, wind, solar, hydrogen. And so I think it really takes somebody with the ability to understand these complex technical problems. I don't know that I've ever dealt with anything more complex than the energy system, right? That system of underground, I call it the 3D grid, right? We have all kinds of things underground, pipelines, all kinds of things overhead, aerial, you know, transmission lines, and then a bunch of stuff on the ground. But I think it takes every bit of an engineering mind to even understand the problem before you can start working on the solution. And very few people really understand it in its totality, right? Is it an electrical problem? Is it a natural gas problem? Is it a consumer demand problem? Is it a chemistry problem about emissions? As a guy who's done a lot of different things, it's clearly the most challenging job I've ever had. It's full of emotions. It's full of politics. It's full of people who may or may not have an idea of what they're talking about, but are firmly driven in their view of how things should go. And with certainty, the landscape is changing rapidly. Just to know what you had said there about political ambitions being part of your field, how do you feel that different political stances or different mindsets kind of like tie into this? I've actually had a, a certain interest in energy, you know, like wanting to work for like the Department of Energy for a couple of years, like, you know, my younger years until I became a civil engineer. I was under the impression that, oh, yeah, well, we should just uh, make water engines or we should just, you know, make flying cars and just run off of the air, but be silly. But how do people's viewpoints really impact your job and what you do? And how can you actually inform them on, you know, like what works and actually what doesn't work from an engineering aspect? Well, Matt, I always want to applaud people who think about water driven cars or flying taxis, because I think we all have to dream to, you know, get to where we need to get. I actually just gave a talk last week on Nikola Tesla and really hadn't, as I was studying him, had no idea how far out there he was at the turn of the century as he thought about alternating current and what it could do. So I love it when people are dreamers, but I do think this particular issue is so many people are driven emotionally. And the the thing that I fight every day is, In order to get to a cleaner climate, we have to get rid of all fossil fuels. Well, we listen to that conversation and I say, well, I think the problem is we're trying to reduce carbon. So in your world, it seems that you need to get rid of coal and oil and natural gas, but it's perfectly appropriate to generate electricity with coal and oil and natural gas, right? And so you and I both know quickly that doesn't get us to a cleaner climate. In fact, that would get us to a dirtier climate because it takes a lot of energy instead of using things directly using them indirectly. And so I just find so many people are driven by maybe a good motive, 
We all want cleaner air, a healthier city, more affordable energy, but very few people are willing to put in the time and effort it takes to understand how to execute those solutions, or even if they are executable. I would love a hydrogen-driven economy. That would be beautiful. I would love nuclear fusion, nothing more. But they're certainly not around the corner, and so we need to do something today to act today. I was also one of those people that had that dream and that aspiration of having like a, a net zero society. But then after becoming an engineer and just reading a little bit more about it and actually engrossing myself in the field, just learning that you have to do something in order to get there. Like you have to completely uproot the infrastructure that we already have set in order for us to get to that net zero, which ends up leaving us not at net zero. You know, if that makes any sense at all. Makes total sense to me. I mean, that first law of thermodynamics kind of tells us it's really hard. I mean, zero is a little bit difficult to achieve, period, right? And I find so often, and I see it, and again, I'm not a political animal by any means. I don't mess with it much. But I find so often, you know, we've come to believe that cars are zero emissions. Well, I don't think that's right at all. I mean, it's a great thing that Tesla was able to get that into the vocabulary, but nothing's net zero. An electric car might be net zero tailpipe emissions, but those emissions are certainly pushed back upstream to the very smokestack of the power plant. I just find it's nice to have an engineering degree and to work with engineers on these problems because they are the people to at least get the system, if you would, and, and maybe quicker get to the totality of the problem so we can start to thinking about the solution. How do you see engineering roles evolving in the context of energy transition and what skills are becoming increasingly important in this field? The energy transition, and by the way, I don't use that word much. I talk about a transformation because I think transition implies that this is going to be smooth and easy and hardly noticeable. And this isn't going to be that. This is going to be lumpy and bumpy. And, you know, some firms and some fuels are going to rise up and be successful and some are going to fall off and die like typewriters or horse and buggies, right? So it's not a transition. I think it's poorly named. It's a transformation. That's right. That's happening in front of us and it will be happening for decades and decades. But I think it takes a whole group of engineers to think that through. I would say this, where it really changes is what happens with batteries. I am convinced that the battery of today is not even remotely the battery of tomorrow. And the batteries that are going to change this conversation aren't the batteries that are even in the labs or beginning to be thought about in the lab, that the batteries of tomorrow are going to be something that we're not even thinking about. That's really where this game changes. And again, it might change on nuclear power. If we ever really do get to nuclear fusion, I think that's a game changer. And maybe if we really begin to understand small modular or nuclear power in a different way, and I know we're all civil engineers, we're not nuclear physicists, but I think between battery storage, long duration, stationary storage mainly, and nuclear power, those are the two wild cards that change the conversation. I don't think the conversation has shifted on solar or wind or, you know, really hydrogen. I think those are players in the field of the energy transformation. But make no mistake about it, and I travel sometimes to the universities, and I see this incoming students, and they're they're wanting to be environmental scientists or 
They're not thinking about engineering careers the way maybe we did even 10 years ago. And I think that's a tragedy for the energy industry, whether it's the traditional oil and gas and mining and all of that, or the new industries like power generation or batteries or just so much of that, they really need the bright minds. I see that you're the host of Path to Zero. So with that, like what insights have you gained from conversations with energy thought leaders regarding the path to zero and carbon emissions? Yeah, I mean, I wish we had about three hours to actually talk about that because that has been a real revelation for me. My podcast, Path to Zero, isn't focused on, you know, natural gas or propane. It's really focused on the energy conversation and the transformation. So we've had multiple people talking about nuclear power, small-scale modular, nuclear fusion, had two or three people talking about carbon and carbon in the oceans and carbon in the air and weather engineering. And some of my most fascinating people have talked about their views of energy equity and environmental justice, things that, you know, really we don't talk about a lot. We had quite a few talking about climate science. I just had a, a session last week with a guy, Stephen Coonan, wrote the book Unsettled. He's not a climate denier, I think, as such, but he's out there on the edge of the world talking about, you know, climate science isn't a settled science. They have a very contrarian view to most of his peers. And so I have learned so much about the value of capturing carbon and the how-to, and I think the realities of the nuclear world, maybe the complexities of climate science or climate engineering, it's really been eye-opening to just see the totality of the school of thought. Nuclear fusion will be here in three years. Nuclear fusion will never be here. I mean, you know, climate science is, is a consensus science. It's all settled. We're not even remotely in agreement. So you get these varying viewpoints, and it has really been eye-opening to, one, the power of the people in this conversation, but to a degree, the lack of consensus around it. How close do you think that we are to nuclear fusion? And do you see that as like the safest route that we can take to achieve that energy efficiency that we're all looking for? That's a softball question. If nuclear fusion could be achieved, then it clearly is the safest route, right? That's base load, zero carbon, really minimal uranium, I mean, minimal disposal of anything, right? So if you could get that, yeah, that's the holy grail. The first part of your question is a troubling one. We're certainly closer than we've ever been. There have been two experiments that have been highly talked about, but if you go back and look at the details, they talk about creating energy, and that's at the tip of the laser. Nobody ever talks about all the energy it took to feed the laser. So I think in my view, if we had nuclear fusion in 20 years, we would be as happy as we could be. Billions of dollars are flowing in to fund fusion. And that mostly is private money, not public money. So there are a lot of people who see promise in it. But if you really look at the, where we are in terms of the research today, we're not even in agreement on the, there are two ways to do nuclear fusion. We're not even in agreement as to the one path. And it might be that one path makes it faster in a lab and another path is the only way to make it at scale for a power uh, plant, for example. So 
My best guess, and I, I tend to think of things in the decades, you know, what are we going to achieve before 2030, where are we at 40, 50, and then beyond 50? I got to put nuclear fusion in something that looks much closer to 2045 or more. Avoid really your understanding. That's very interesting. So we have quite a ways to go there. So that's in the future, of course. But let's talk about the current and let's talk about propane. Could you highlight some propane innovations that contribute to our sustainability and how engineers can engage in that field? And I'm always happy when we talk about it. I was doing an interview earlier this morning with a really intelligent lady that had worked for the Department of Energy. And she was like, tell me about what propane does beyond my gas grill. I'm like, I mean, we are so far past the gas grill. So first off, I believe in a world that probably natural gas, propane, and then their renewable counterparts, renewable natural gas, renewable propane, are very much a part of the energy transformation going forward, right? You got all this infrastructure. And even in today's world, if you just think about carbon, they offer, in many cases, the lowest carbon content of anything we're doing, including electricity. 60% of the grid today comes from coal, oil, and natural gas. So it's not hard to beat that directly using natural gas and propane. For me, I see the future for propane in a couple things. Replacing diesel fuel in on-road transportation, not in light-duty cars or passenger cars or that kind of thing, but in medium-duty, heavy-duty trucking. Absolutely. But anywhere we can begin to think about replacing diesel fuel and using lower carbon fuels like propane, that's a big win for everybody. It's a win for the climate. It's a win for our health. It's a win for our pocketbook because it's cheaper. So medium-duty transportation, heavy-duty transportation for sure. Material handling, and there's just scads of opportunities there. Again, as we think about replacing diesel, not easy to electrify because it's really 24-7 kind of operations. Just not really, doesn't lend itself to battery operation for today. And then the last part of that is power generation. You know, everybody thinks about a, having a Generac or a Briggs & Stratton generator at their home, right? This is probably on propane or natural gas. But today we are so involved in producing power for prime power applications, for backup applications, for EV charging. I am shocked. And I've been in the middle of this for the last five or six years. I'm shocked at the pace of adoption in power generation because the grid's gotten expensive. The grid's become fairly fragile, if you would, unreliable in many cases. And people that really need power are looking to some alternative. They used to look to diesel, but we finally, and this, by the way, this is courtesy of engineering, where we're able to now produce propane-driven technologies that are as durable, as efficient, but yet much cleaner. Let's dive into diesel versus propane. You tell me like the differences in, in cost, utility. Obviously, you're saying that diesel is more harmful for the environment, but how harmful is it actually? Let's talk about a medium-duty propane vehicle because I have those numbers right on top of my head. In terms of uh, CO2 or greenhouse gases, we're in a partnership with Cummins. An engine is coming out with them. It's a beautiful engine. It cuts greenhouse gases 25%. 25% from the next best technology in the marketplace today. We cut NOx emissions, which are harmful to our lungs, all plants, particularly harmful to children's lungs. We cut NOx emissions by 97%. And then particulate matter, which is a known carcinogen, 
not good for anybody. We see it when we have the dust storms or those forest fires blow over into Maryland or I was at New York and then Chicago on those days. It just happened to be there. And uh, we cut particulate matter. I'm not allowed to say we cut them 100% because there's got to be something, but we cut it so low we can't measure it. So let's say we cut it 99.99%. And and a modern diesel does a pretty good job of trying to trap particulate matter and reducing NOx. But at the end of the day, it's doing it through its after treatment. And that after treatment's really complex. We're doing it with a really simple after treatment. So to your point, we're cutting greenhouse gas emissions 25%. We're cutting NOx emissions 97%. And particulate matter 99.99%. That gives you better climate, better health, more affordable. What collaborative efforts or initiatives are shaping the future in the propane industry and how can engineers participate in that? This is an area that I love what we're doing because we're really working with what you would have thought maybe would be competitors. And we don't view we have competitors because we view that to get to the climate we need to get to, it's going to really take, you know, a wide path, right? So we are collaborating with solar and wind as we think about truly building net zero homes and net zero buildings. And we're really trying to think through battery storage to come up with complex solutions that involve batteries and solar or wind or solar and wind, and then use propane as well. And it's something that we've been doing for years. And it really does provide an unbelievable solution. I mean, let's even look at transportation. I can talk very clearly about the benefits of a propane engine but one of the things we realized, probably the future is going to be a propane hybrid engine. So now we're starting to bring in some sophisticated powertrain teams and marry the best propane engines with the best powertrains and given a hybrid solution. What we're beginning to see is whether we're talking about your home, a hospital, or a vehicle, that if we can marry the best of an electrical system with the best of the internal combustion components, generally offers us the lowest impact on the climate, best operating characteristics, and lowest total cost to the purchaser. So we're really excited when we collaborate with solar and wind or you know electric powertrain teams, we really get excited because I think we bring the best solutions to the market. Let's talk about the challenges that happen with those emerging trends that you're talking about right now. So what challenges do you see that we might be facing as engineers trying to dive into those industries and those different technologies? The challenges have been and continue to be, we haven't really tried to work together. So when somebody's putting together solar and propane systems, there's a fair amount of work that needs to be done because it, it really hadn't been done before. And so we just all have to get onto a common uh, language. You know, companies want to make money. They want to see value. I mean, there's always a profit motive in that. And we have to find people who really are willing to work on this front end and put a lot of effort into a lot of sweat equity. And some of these companies can. Some of these companies don't have a lot of money, but they have the right ideas, the right talent. So just trying to find how to bring a team together, create a vision, and then execute a solution in the face of maybe political ill will, lack of capital, lack of clarity around regulations, real lack of clarity around future regulations. 
And sometimes what we're looking for is to create a system that's so compelling, maybe it, the regulations form around it. That would be our ultimate goal. And I'm happy to say, Matt, we're doing it almost every week now. We're doing it in residential and commercial construction. We're doing it in transportation and material handling. We're doing it in marine. We're actually taking ships. Ten years ago, I said there's no potential for a ship powered by propane, much less renewable propane. Today, I think there are 150 on the water and another sizable amount transforming right now in the, in the shipyard. And so 150 that are operating off of regular propane or renewable propane right now? Today, regular propane on the water. And 10 years ago, I said, I don't think that's even going to ever happen. And so the reason I know the numbers, I get a, an email from one of the engine designers about once a month telling me, here's how many we sold this month. Remember what you said 10 years ago. And it, it is just an amazing reminder to me of open up your mind and think about the potentials and dream big. And by the way, no question in my mind that in 15 years, maybe less, all of those ships won't be running on propane. They'll be running on renewable propane, zero carbon renewable propane, because that's the path we're on. Yeah, I think that we're moving a lot faster than we actually give ourselves credit for, which is great. I mean, I love it and love to see that. So how can we actually learn about these things? Like what resources do you have that are available where energy junkies like myself or other people that are actually viewing this podcast, where can we learn about these things? I am a voracious reader. I tend to read every day, you know, the New York Times, uh, the Wall Street Journal, usually a couple of papers in Europe, and then I devour trade information talking about either evolution in the natural gas world or the electric world. So the internet has so much stuff. If I boiled your, your question down though simply, I still learn a lot from podcasts and I learn a lot from books. I was looking at my bookcase. I'm probably eight or 10 books behind right now on people that I've had on my podcast or people that I just really have an interesting viewpoint that I want to read about. But I get most of my information on a weekly basis through listening to other people's podcasts and then listening to or reading writers, you know, Forbes, The Economist, not necessarily technical. You can get into the technical pretty fast once you read it. I'm pretty sure that Path to Zero, although I haven't listened to it yet, um, I definitely will be giving it a couple of listens just to try to learn a little bit more about what it is that we're talking about here and get more in depth with it. So everybody that's watching and viewing this podcast, definitely make sure that you follow along with uh, Mr. Tucker here and follow his podcast and get a glimpse as to you know what it is that he's actually talking about here so we can know and we can be prepared for the future so we can actually take advantage of these opportunities in the energy sector. So now let's go ahead and talk about some career advice for anyone that is uh, aspiring to get into the energy sector. So what career advice do you have for aspiring engineers? I really appreciate what you're doing. And I think about my own personal development. I'm probably a high school sophomore. My father was a mechanical engineer. I had a couple relatives that I really admired that were electrical engineers. But as I was trying to decide what to do, I rode my bicycle. I don't even think I could even drive at the time. I rode my bicycle up the street to a neighbor who just sat with me, and he was a surveyor. And I remember that he was a civil engineer. He'd become a surveyor and had a great career. I was talking to him about the various engineering professions, 
And I don't think he ever realized it, but the conversations we had that night fairly well cemented the fact that I was going to at least start my career thinking about being a civil engineer. So I'm always wanting to repay that day forward to kind of help other people. I personally believe that you need to do what you like doing. And if you don't enjoy it, go find something you enjoy. Because I think by doing something you like, the passion comes through. And then you continue to evolve and grow. So I don't really ever advocate. I work every day with electrical engineers and chemical engineers and mechanical engineers. And what I'm looking for is competency and passion. So I'm really proud to be a civil engineer. I'm really proud of what civil engineers do. But it was what was I was passionate about. I just would encourage engineers to go to a good school, listen, study, pay your time, because you only, you only have to take about four years to pay your time, and then follow your passion. I would say this, the kind of the other piece I'm going to talk about as much as you want. I know when I was in school, I didn't think that much about English, right? I'm going to be an engineer. How, what do I care about English literature or composition? And I wish I hadn't thought like that at the time, because now I realize two things. One, it's all about communication. You can be the best engineer on the planet, but if you cannot clearly communicate what you're doing, why you're doing it, maybe what your instructions are to others to help you do it, if you can't write about it clearly and articulately and succinctly, if you can't communicate, you're really not really going to ever reach your potential. The other aspect, and it's, it's happened to me later in my career, I've really been able to at least enjoy history, enjoy art, enjoy music, enjoy those things that aren't so much that part of our engineering brain, right? So we got this engineering side of our brain, linear thinking and you know problem solving and rational, but it's really nice to feed yourself every once in a while with the other side of your brain. And it, it's kind of, again, what you like. Is it art? Is it music? Is it cooking? Is it dancing? Is it you know, history, feed the other side of your brain too. So if I boil that down simply, do what you love, feed both sides of your brain, and whatever you do, learn how to write and speak clearly. That's a major key. I think that we got a couple of uh, good snippets that you've actually just said there that could definitely be posted up in a quote book. For me, what I really got from that is that passion really drives your results. If you don't have the passion, you won't get the results. And that's uh period. We're going to take a quick break here. And when we get back and we're going to be diving into our CE hot seat segment, stay tuned. Civil engineering podcast, civil engineering podcast. All right, everyone, we are back and it's time for our CE hot segment of the week with Tucker Perkins. Tucker, are you ready to go? I'm ready. Do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? Now, for example, do you have any specific morning rituals lunchtime, dinnertime rituals, or just rituals that you have throughout your day that you do to consistently, on a daily basis, contribute to being a successful professional? I do. And actually, I just attended a seminar by an Air Force fighter pilot who talked exclusively about the importance of rituals. And in his world, he said almost every successful person he deals with has a ritual. For me, I do like to rise up earlier than anybody in my family, kind of catch that part of the morning that's quiet. Maybe the sun's not quite up just to collect my thoughts, maybe to calm myself, to get ready for the day. But 
to really get myself mentally prepared. A lot of guys, that's when they would do devotional work or, you know, for me, I think it's just to get your mind and your body prepared. And then I do try to find at least 30 to 40 minutes of exercise time. And I, if it's a pretty day, I might run in my neighborhood. If the sun's up, I might bike, but I'm going to figure out a way to, when my feet hit the ground, to have 10 or 15 minutes of calm time and then 30 to 40 minutes of exercise. Then I know I'm ready to start the day. Funny, I don't really have an end of day ritual. Sometimes my day ends at 7 p.m. Sometimes it doesn't end till 9 or 10 p.m. But I do always at least try to end the day and tell my brain it's time to turn work off and turn home on. And, I, you know, as I would say, be here now for my wife or for my kids and maybe for my own self to turn my work off. Fit body is a fit mind. Exercise is very important. This exercising your brain is also important as well. I think that there is a lot that we can get just from having those wee hours in the morning, you know, birds are chirping outside, the sun is starting to rise, you know, before anybody is up, before you get all the hustle and bustle going, to start calmly, meditate. As you said, devotionals are very important for some people. I know that that's very important for me and it really helps me to get my mind right. So no, definitely appreciate that advice. I think calm and calming is completely underrated. We don't talk about it enough. Maybe Apple Watches, you know, try to encourage us to take a moment of mindfulness. But I really do think you make better decisions and you're a better person when you're mindful and calm. What's one book that you recommend to engineers regularly or one book that you have found to be extremely helpful in your professional and personal development? So the answer here should amaze you because you wish I would say something technical or some how-to book. It's a book by Stephen Ambrose called Undaunted Courage. And it's the story of Meriwether Lewis and Clark going across the country in the country they knew nothing about, in places they had no idea what they were going to see. Really, to me, it's about the power of planning and, and teamwork, but it really underscores perseverance. I mean, the story that I love to tell is here they essentially leave St. Louis headed west thinking they were going to go up over one mountain and probably if they could get over top of that mountain, they were going to look out down the other side and see either a big plain or maybe better yet, they'd see the Pacific Ocean. And of course, anybody who's traveled across this country one time, though, when you cross that first mountain, all you see is a series of taller mountains. And every time I read that book, I think about the power of perseverance. You can be the best at planning. You could have created the best team, but every once in a while, you just have to persevere and stick to it. And of course, as we all know, yes, they crossed all those mountains, found the Pacific, found their way all the way back, dodged death time and time again, communicated with the president of the United States along the way, discovered all this flora and fauna and animals and lifestyles of the indigenous people all over the country and reminds me how perseverance is such an important trait. Now, thinking back on any managers that you've had in the past, picture your favorite manager or managers, what traits of them made them your favorite? Well, it's probably three. They're pretty good communicators about what it is they want you to do. They create an environment that allows you to succeed, right? Let you they're not micromanaging you. They're, they're creating an environment that lets you succeed. And then clearly they're mentoring you 
to kind of help you along the way. I mean, no one will ever develop being micromanaged. No one will ever develop being told all the steps to do. So I think anyone I've had that was a great manager, and I've had a couple, they allowed me to be successful by giving me what needed to be done, checking in with me. I mean, particularly as a young engineer, I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, so they checked in with me and then actually mentored me along the way, encouraged me, maybe, you know, let me know I wasn't doing that right. Yeah, let's, let's go down this other path. But those three things, create the right environment, good communicator, and good mentor. That's what it takes. That's an absolute key for anybody that is aspiring to be a leader. Those are the things that people really pay attention to. And it really sticks in our minds, you know, for years to come. It really helps us to develop over time as well. So I have one more question for you, and that is the civil engineering career elevator advice question. I know that sounds like a loaded, you know, question there, but if you had 30 to 40 seconds in an elevator with a young engineer or a person that didn't know anything about engineering, what advice would you give them on their career that way they can actually progress throughout their career? Welcome to the fraternity of what develops your mind probably better than any other form of education, right? To develop how to approach problems, how to think about problem solving in a linear structured way. So welcome to field of engineering that just teaches you how to think. And once you know how to think, it doesn't really matter what you're trying to do. Knowing how to think and how to have a structured solution and clearly identify a problem will allow you to be successful the rest of your life. Whether you're dealing with your family or with your wife, with your community or in your job. And I think a civil engineering degree is foundational to just having a good way to approach the problems that life throws at you. Where can our listeners connect with you so that we can learn a little bit more about you and what you do and what you have to offer? Well, I'm all over LinkedIn. So I, you know, Tucker Perkins, it's easy to find me on LinkedIn. I do encourage them to check out our podcast. And if they want to learn more about where we're going with propane and some of the exciting developments, we have a great website called propane.com. And in there is uh, quite a bit of technical information around some of the innovation we're doing that we talked about, power generation, transportation, engine development. There's three places you can find me. And I would love to work with people who are listening to this. I'm proud of our profession and I'm proud of what we contribute to the greater good of society. Tucker, we really appreciate your time. Yeah, like all of the insights that you've given us. So we really appreciate that. Thank you. Matt, it's been a blast. Thank you. Please remember that you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. And there you'll find a summary of all the key points that we discussed in today's episode, as well as any of the links to any resources, websites, or books mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, I wish you all the very, very best in your civil engineering endeavors. Take care. Thank you for listening. And don't forget to download the latest version of our AE Industry Trends Report to get answers to the questions that you want to ask your staff, but you may be afraid to do so. How long will the great resignation last? How long should you allow employees to work remotely? and how are successful firms using data to grow sustainably for the long term. You can learn the answers to these questions and more by downloading the report at engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.